Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Friday, May the 5th, 2017, and this is episode 1998 of the Survival Podcast, and you're going to have your listener council show today. I know yesterday I left you guys with a rewind, but it was a really great show. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I committed a little technical uh Fapu, whatever you would call it, uh, and screwed up at the beginning. It didn't have the episode attached, but I, I fixed that within like 15 minutes. So I hope it didn't cause too much grief in your day, especially as early as the show was out. It should have been uh, defaut pod pretty quick. Uh, anyway, what are we going to have today up for the expert council? I have the fate of the morbidly obese and a shit hit the fan. I have keeping yaks and all bovines healthy and alive with Darby Simpson. I have fine-tuning your financial bullshit detector with John Pugliano. I have using whey to kickstart a ferment with Erica Strauss. Cooking mutton with Chef Keith Snow. And the seasons according to a beekeeper from Michael Jordan. And I have a question for me. Will we ever see the end of the social justice warrior idiocy? I might have a little different take on this than you might think. It should be a good show. We'll have all of that for, for you and more in just a bit. Before we do that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Hey, folks, if silver and gold are not part of your current economic preparedness plan, they should be. In fact, for over eight years, I have recommended that listeners keep 5 to 10% of their wealth in precious metals as a wealth assurance program. And JM Bullion is my personal choice for all my precious metal purchases. They offer some of the best pricing in the industry and free shipping on top of it. Check out jambullion.com to learn more. Hey, if, if you're like me, you know what a gun without ammo is. We call that an overpriced club. That's why I go to bulkammo.com and keep a good stockpile of ammo for all my guns at all times. And it isn't just great price and availability that keeps me going back for more. Nope, it's lightning-fast shipping and exceptional service. Give BulkAmmo.com a shot, and I promise they won't let you down. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. The year is 1998, because the episode's 1998. <clears throat> and we have uh, three for us today. Southpaw Ben is back. I think I'll read his, because he's been out of bounds for a while. We have Run, Rudolph, Run, which is about Eric Rudolph being on the run from the FBI by Alex Shrugged. And we have Bill Clinton is impeached, contributed by Southpaw Ben. And then we have What Impeachment? I'm Busy Bombing Iraq, contributed by Alex Shrugged. Notable births this year. Southpaw Ben, contributor to the TSP Wiki and current college student at Penn State University, majoring in agroology, in the agroology option, of the plant science major. Jack, feel free to critique the choice as a freshman. I'm open to change and not overly committed to anything yet. Definitely the most important birth this year. So, Bob, Ben, I'm not going to contribute that at this point or critique that at this point on you, Ben. Um, Eli Fanning, Lily of the Young Love Interest of We Bought a Zoo. No idea what that is. And Jaden Smith, son of Will Smith and star of the 2010 remake of The Karate Kid. Alex Shrugged said I didn't like, particularly like the remake. Yeah, me neither. Notable deaths this year. Uh, Phil Hartman, age 49, shot by his wife. She was on cocaine and committed suicide thereafter. So live fame. I like Phil Hartman. Sony Bono, age 42, head injury in a skiing accident. Congressman, mayor, and pop singer. 
Frank Sinatra, 82, heart attack, singer and actor. Roy Rogers, age 86, congestive heart failure, singer and cowboy actor. And Gene Autry, age 91, died of lymphoma, singer and cowboy actor. We lost some good people that year. This year in film, Armageddon, Deep Impact. In both movies, a planet-killing asteroid threatens Earth. Deep Impact is more realistic. Armageddon is more fun. I'd agree with both of those uh, things and critiques there. Saving Private Ryan, World War II film with an intense portrayal of the landing at Omaha Beach. Yeah, um, the most realistic combat movie ever Still to this day, I would say. It's not the whole movie, but the opening components of the Omaha Beach landing. It is like being there. It is so much so that there were World War II vets and other combat veterans that were invited to the premiere, and some of them had to be escorted from the um, from the theaters because it brought back such vivid memories of what it was like. Also this year, The Truman Show, The Parent Trap, which was a remake, Wag the Dog, which sort of seemed like it was about the current administration to me anyway, and many other popular films. This year in TV, debuting The King of Queens, sitcom about a couple living in Queens, And um, Leah Ramone is, of course, in that, and she is now uh, public enemy number one of the Church of Scientology. So I like her more now than I did when she was in King of Queens. The 70s Show, I love the 70s Show. I used to watch that with my son and his friends all the time. Will and Grace, uh, sitcom featuring a gay lawyer and a straight interior designer. And, yeah, it wasn't really a very good show, in my opinion. Uh, you know, you can't just throw a gay guy in something and make it edgy and Yeah, okay. Sex in the City. I'd rather shoot myself than watch that. Uh, this year in music, My Heart Will Go On by Celine Dion, theme song from Titanic. You're Still the One by Shania Twain. And George Michael is arrested for engaging a lewd act in a pre public restroom. He calls it a subconsciously deliberate act. Okay. Uh, the Sony Bono Copyright Extension Act adds another 20 years. I call it the Mickey Mouse Protection Act since it protects Disney's profitable creations during the end of their copyright protection. I would agree with that. This year in video games, Tom Clancy's Rainbow Six, Metal Gear Solid, Atari is acquired by Hasbro, and Pokemon Red and Blue is released in North America. In other news this year, Google is founded. Viagra is approved for erectile dysfunction in America. Osama bin Laden bombs the embassies in Tanzania and Kenya. James Byrd is dragged to his death in Jasper, Texas. Um... And that was a horrible thing. That was done over racism. And Matthew Shepard is beaten to death in Laramie, Wyoming. And that was um, a crime against gays. And both of those were just awful. And they were both also, feature, also featured in that 90s documentary uh, that I, I talked about earlier this week. Let's read Bill Clinton is impeached. It's probably the biggest thing that happened this year, even though it meant absolutely nothing in the end. On December 19, 1998, impeachment proceedings began against Bill Clinton on the charges of perjury and obstruction of justice. These charges stem from Clinton's testimony about his affair with Monica Lewinsky. This testimony was during a sexual harassment lawsuit filed by Paula Jones, a civil servant, while Clinton was governor of Arkansas. In this lawsuit, she alleged that she, he had exposed himself to her. At the end of the proceedings, he will become the second president to be impeached, the first being Andrew Johnson, neither of whom received the two-thirds majority in the Senate, required to remove him from office. As a result, he will be acquitted of charges. This was the exact same result that happened with Andrew Johnson's impeachment. My take by, Alex, uh, my, by, by Southpaw Ben. First of all, so many of Bill's problems wouldn't have come up if he had just kept his pants on, both literally and figuratively. Many people seem to confuse impeachment with removal from office. Impeachment is simply the process through which a president 
or other governing officials are formally charged with a crime, after the impeachment there's a trial, and if needed, removal from office. These two steps are independent of the act of impeachment itself. With all the calls I've seen for Trump to be impeached, I wonder what they want to charge him with, or if they simply are misinformed as to what impeachment actually entails and what the results of a successful impeachment actually are. Yeah, they have no idea. Most of this is these young social justice warrior idiots. And I won't say too much about this because I have my final questions about social justice warrior idiots. But no, they don't know what impeachment means, and they think the Congress can just do it because they don't like them. That's what they think. That's how stupid they are. Let me break it down in a way that will make sense to you. Let's say the police come investigate a crime and they question you in connection with that crime. And they decide that they think there's enough evidence to proceed to a trial because you won't admit you're guilty and they really think you did it. The first step's not a trial. The first step is they take the charges and you and you go before a grand jury. And the grand jury only makes the determination of whether or not there's enough evidence to proceed to trial. That's what an impeachment is. It's like being convened in front of a grand jury. And the, the Congress serving as the grand jury and the Senate serving as the actual court. That's how that works. Um, and when they, when they took Bill Clinton through the process of impeachment, it was only to weaken him politically because they knew he would never be convicted by the Senate and he would never be removed from office. There was never any intent to remove Bill Clinton from office. The main intent was to influence the 98 elections. And the Republicans blew it. They blew it. They got spanked. After such an amazing victory in 96, they barely held on to their majority in the House. Um, it was not a good decision politically. It also tells us something else about people. If you're wealthy enough, rich enough, and important enough in the eyes of our government, you can get away with sexual harassment. You can get away with rape. I'd say some other things I think the Clintons got away with, but I'll just leave it there. And it amazes me that all these social justice warriors today that are out there, and among other things, claiming the United States is a culture of rape. Culture of rape, that's their words. Um, don't seem to have anything but absolute love and adornment for Bill Clinton. One of the most womanizing pieces of shit that we've ever publicly known about, who also got away with it. Just a piece of shit, in my opinion. I know some of you are offended by that. I don't really give a shit, because... I'm not really interested in people that want to defend people like Bill Clinton. Not whether or not they were a decent president. I'll tell you, actually, I think overall, Clinton's presidency was better than quite a few of some other contemporaries, as far as his presidency itself. However, the man is a vile piece of shit for the way that he treated women. And, uh, you know, the Lewinsky thing, well, it's consensual. She's a 19-year-old intern in the White House. The guy's a predator. He's a sleazebag. And he got away with everything. Nothing ever really. Yeah, I know he lost his law license. You know what that meant to him? The square root of F all. I'll just leave it at that. I do want to remind you guys, though, that uh, this week, and this is the last day of the week, but it goes all the way till Monday, I have a sale running on the MSB. You can get your MSB for $30 a year. It does apply to recurring uh, with the discount code SPRING17. Just go to survivalpodcast.com, click on Members or the MSB banner in the column to your right. To learn more about that, the MSB is always a great deal, but with this sale, it's an incredible deal. And because I screwed up last week, the sale was extended into this week.
Also want to remind you that Paul Wheaton has a really freaking cool thing going on right now with this streaming PDC that you can partake in. There'll be a link in today's show notes so you can learn more about it. It's pretty awesome stuff like making a rocket mass heater, a full PDC, a bunch of other stuff. The instructors that he's put together for this thing is freaking awesome. I wish I could go. I can't go, but I can watch it live streaming. I may watch some of it live streaming. I don't, I don't know if I can sit around four weeks, watch four weeks of live streaming stuff. Uh, but it's certainly worth uh, checking out and learn more about it. Uh, there'll be a link in the show notes today for it. You can just see the post that I've previously done on the blog. All right, with that, let's go ahead and get into uh, our first call of the day. Our first call of the day is for Doc Bones, and it's about what will be the fate of the morbidly obese in a shit at the fan where you have to start rationing food. Part of me just feels like might be good for him. Doc, take it away. Hi, Joe Alden, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of the survival medicine website doomandbloom.net, now with close to 1,000, wow, articles, videos, and podcasts on medical preparedness. I'm also the co-author, along with my lovely wife, Nurse Amy, of the 700-page third edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook, the essential guide for when medical help is not on the way. This week's question for the expert council comes from Adam in Northern California, who writes... We all know that obesity is an epidemic in the United States, but I'm mostly concerned about the fate of the morbidly obese in a mid- or long-term breakdown situation. It seems likely that food would have to be rationed during periods of uncertainty, and it seems like rationing a severely obese person the same as a more normal weight person would put them at more risk for complications. Is this a concern? What do we do when Fat Uncle Freddy comes over to ride out the next disaster? Well, Adam, you're absolutely right that we have an epidemic of obesity in the United States. The fate of the morbidly obese in a situation where you're off-grid and on the run is probably not something I'd like to talk about. I always talk about the need to be fit for the situation with which you expect to be confronted. Any morbidly obese people would be unlikely to perform activities of daily survival. Therefore, convince your group members with obese-level BMIs to begin working to reduce weight and improve fitness before a disaster occurs. In normal times, there are diet plans, drugs, and even minor surgical procedures that will help even the heaviest person lose weight if they're committed to do so. Otherwise, decide that you're going to be able to support an obese family member without getting much help from them in return to increase your chances of survival. This may be perfectly reasonable if you're talking about your mom or dad, or if the obese person comes with a great deal of food or other supplies that will improve your group's chance of making it. Survival settings, the obese group member is going to lose some weight, and due to physical exertion that just can't be avoided, they may become more physically fit if they don't have other medical issues, such as clogged coronary arteries or, let's say, type 1 diabetes. These folks will suffer higher mortality rates than folks whose only problem is extra weight. Type 2 diabetics, interestingly enough, may remain stable or even improve under the dietary restrictions and increase physical activity as part and parcel of being off the grid, although the effects will be variable. Now, here's some dietary advice for these folks. To lose a pound of fat, you have to eliminate 3,500 calories from your diet. Now, by cutting just 500 calories a day, you can lose one pound a week. Now, typically losing one to two pounds a week is perfectly healthy weight loss. However, if you're morbidly obese and you begin a healthy diet and exercise, certainly, you will have greater weight loss most likely in the first few weeks. For the grand majority of obese persons, this is okay. 
A safe caloric range for most women wanting to lose weight is 1,000 to 1,200 calories per day, according to the National Institute of Health. Men should eat between 1,200 and 1,600 calories per day to lose weight. Now, is there an easy way to do this? Not really, but you can try this. When you sit down to a meal, fill one half of your plate with vegetables, one quarter with whole grains, and one quarter with a lean protein. Drink water instead of sugary drinks. You have to eliminate things like soda from your diet. You should replace saturated fats found in fatty animal products with healthy fats, such as olive oil, lean poultry, unsalted nuts, unsalted seeds. You want to eliminate trans fats, which are found in processed foods from your diet. This requires reading the labels, but it's worth it. Now, anyone who's got more sense than God gave a clam will know that the morbidly obese will be challenged in a long-term disaster scenario. Those folks would be well advised to work towards losing weight while there are professionals who can help ease the way in normal times. This is Joe Alden, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health in good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, do Nurse Amy and me a big favor by following us on Twitter at Prepper Show, on our YouTube channel at Dr. Bones, Dr. Bones, Nurse Amy, at our podcast, The Survival Medicine Hour, at Blog Talk Radio, and our other current event podcast, American Survival Radio, at americansurvivalradio.com. Also, don't forget that the Member Support Brigade gets a special coupon code for discounts off our medical kits and individual supplies at store.doomandbloom.net. That's store. .doomandbloom.net. Thanks again. So, um, the only thing I'll add there is on the type 2 diabetes thing, 90% of the time or more, type 2 diabetes is completely reversible with dietary changes. There are some exceptions to that, and I usually hear from the people that are the exceptions, or at least believe that they're exceptions. They may be, I don't know, uh, whenever I say this, but... There's been study after study done where they take fat people with diabetes and put them on a highly calorically restrictive diet of 800 calories a day, and uh, they become not so fat anymore, and they reverse their diabetes. A recent study just done in 2016 uh, had incredible results very quickly uh, by doing that exact same thing and, and putting people on a highly restrictive diet and then slowly returning to normal eating and eating a little bit more healthy, and they proved not only could people who were recent type 2 diabetics, but even some of the people in the study who had diabetes, type 2 diabetes for more than 10 years, 10 years, uh, when put on this highly restrictive diet, completely reversed the position, the, the, the condition. So it's just something to think about. If you're dealing with that, lose some gut, and you might not have the problem anymore. Uh, next, I have a question for Darby Simpson on yaks. Now, Darby's a full-time farmer. You can answer all your questions about farming, pastured poultry, pastured pork, pastured beef. Uh, but yaks are something Darby doesn't deal with. But yaks are cattle. They're bovines. So I think uh, Darby can certainly handle this question. And it involves a guy that's been on the show before, Nick uh, Hazleton, with the Anyak, uh, An, Anar, An, I can't remember now, the Anarchist Yak Farmer podcast. It's actually called something else. Uh, but he's a young guy and uh, lost a couple yaks, and he, he has a question for Darby. Darby, see if you can help us with this. Hey there, everybody. This is Darby Simpson calling in to answer another question for the expert council. This week, I've got a question from Nick regarding health of a, a couple of yaks, which are basically a member of the bovine family. Um, and Nick, unfortunately, had two of them die recently, and he's wanting to know what he can do to help avert that in the future. 
Um, the first one he said died from an unknown cause, but that the second one had a really large parasite load, uh, which is not uncommon this time of year coming out of winter. Um, so Nick, there's a few different things we can do to prevent, uh, parasitic loads going forward as well as to, uh, kind of cure them from a, a more acute standpoint in the near term. One thing you're definitely going to want to start doing as best you can, uh, and you mentioned this in your email, is to start doing some rotational grazing with your animals. Um, even if you don't have a huge place, you don't want to leave them uh, on the, the same small uh, concentrated area for great lengths of time because then your parasitic load is going to build up uh, you know, in, in that small area. So anything you can do to rotate them around, um, anything you can do to graze longer in the fall so that they're, they're not cooped up so much in the winter. I mean, certainly they need access to shelter. So you might have a, a barnyard or something. Um, but anything we can do to lighten the, the load, the concentration of manure and urine and all that stuff, uh, which is where we tend to see a lot of these parasitic loads build up. That's going to be a really positive thing. So you're on the right track there. And, and like one simple thing you could do if you're, you know, if you're feeding hay in the winter is to move your hay feeder around. Don't leave it in the same spot all winter. Um, move it out onto pasture, you know, in, in a few different cells off of, uh, if you're using a, a barn for them to have shelter, move it around a bit, put up some, some temporary fencing, some reels and step in posts that are electrified. Uh, or whatever you have to do, but, you know, move that hay feeder around somewhat so that they're, you know, going to go and stand and eat and do their business in some different areas. That's also good because it spreads out all those nutrients, uh, and all that organic matter from the wasted hay onto different areas of your pasture. So you can actually build the soil up a bit in those other areas. Um, I'll also tell you that, you know, you mentioned one of these guys died from an unknown cause. And, you know, unfortunately, this last November, we had one of our cows who was pretty young and, and very healthy. Um, she died suddenly, came down with something neurological. And we never did really figure out what was going on. And, you know, sometimes those things just happen. There's really, there's not a whole lot you can do. Um, you're not going to have a 100% success rate. We've been very fortunate. That's the first cow we've lost in the uh, six or seven years that we've had cattle. So we, we kind of feel like we've been really lucky. Um, and so you can't, you know, you can't fix every little problem, but when we get into winter and this, this year we had a pretty mild winter here, but when we get into winter, you know, just like us, our animals, their immune system is really under a lot of pressure, comes under a lot of attack. And I haven't always been really good in the past about supplementing them with different things that I felt like would probably help them, but they were expensive. I didn't really feel as though they needed it. So I was really bad about doing that. Um, and after this cow died in November, that, that really just kind of gave me a paradigm shift. So we started doing a few different things that we, we've done bits and pieces of it in the past, but we never really had kind of like a, what I'd call a comprehensive approach to it. And what we began doing was, uh, giving them some, uh, some dried kelp, which granted is expensive, right? But it's not as expensive as a couple of dead animals. And the kelp, uh, is, is something that can really boost their immune system. 
Um, we also did a much better job of getting them uh, trace mineral salt. Uh, and we, we like using Redmond, which is uh, it's from Utah Salt Mines. You'll actually see that stuff on store shelves to uh, use for the kitchen. Same thing as in the 50-pound bags. It's just not filtered down as finely. And you can give that free choice to your cows. And um, what we like to do, particularly when we know there's a big worm load and parasite load, is diametaceous earth. It's very effective. Uh, you can mix that in with the salt. You can mix it in with the kelp. If you want, you can get them some organic alfalfa pellets and, and you know, kind of coat those alfalfa pellets with it and just run that through their system for at least two weeks, maybe up to a month if you think you've got a really heavy load so that you can be sure that you uh, really annihilate everything. And that will really, really help to knock down the parasite load. Uh, something else you can do, and I've seen several other people do this, and I, I've done it occasionally, um, and I can't tell you that it will be as effective as a diametaceous earth, but I do believe it's beneficial, is, is to use basic H organic soap. That's something that actually Joel Salatin talks a lot about. Putting animals on basic H soap, it just kind of helps cleanse their system. I don't pretend to understand the biology behind that. I can't tell you any more about it than that. Um, but it, it's it's low cost, and uh, you know it, he claims it's effective. Several several other people claim it's effective. Uh, I I have I have used it uh, periodically, not when I had a really known heavy parasite load, but. I think that that's something else you can you can look at doing. But what we want to try and do is is purge their system of these parasites and then give their immune system a boost. And obviously, along with this, you want to be giving them good quality hay. Make sure they've got access to clean, fresh water, and make certain that if it's really really cold, I, I don't know where your farm is located, that um, you know that they've got shelter. And I know that yaks are you know woolly and can handle a bit more uh, harsh weather. But if they're sick, they really need a place that they can they can get in out of the, the wind and the, the wet to uh, kind of give themselves the opportunity to recuperate. So uh, really, Nick, that's, that's all I got for you. Um, I hope that you don't have to go through this again. It's not fun. There's, uh, there's nothing worse than having an animal die and then having to, you know, cart it off and... Um, and then, you know, just to add insult to injury, having to call one of your neighbors with a large backhoe to come dig you a hole for 75 bucks so you can bury your your dead cow or your dead yak. It uh, just kind of sucks all the way around. But I would I would tell you that you're on the right track with the rotational grazing. Think about implementing some of those other things, and I think that you will be well on the road to recovery. Uh, for everyone else, if you want to learn more about me, head on out to DarbySimpson.com. There's a lot of free blog articles out there on all things related to raising 100% grass-fed beef, pork, and poultry uh, for profit. I am a full-time farmer and uh, make a living at this this crazy racket that uh, Joel Salatin calls lunatic farming. Um, and if you're really into this and really dig it, head on over to Permaculture Voices and click on the Grass-Fed Life tab. I do a weekly podcast with Diego Footer over there. We're up to like episode 55. Uh, we're wrapping up a five-part series, five-week series on grass-fed sheep and lamb. So if you're really interested in learning more about lamb, uh, check that out. And uh, just appreciate you guys sending in all the questions. Keep them coming. Let me know if you got more. As always, thanks a bunch for the, uh, the question you sent in there, Nick. Everyone have a great weekend and take care. 
Good stuff from Darby. Um, I'll just add to it that I was amazed when we got some cattle up at Permaethos Farm in West Virginia. Um, the lengths cows will go to to kill themselves. It's uh, I always thought of cattle as like, you, know, you really can't screw that up. As long as they get fed and they get water and they don't get too hot and they don't get too cold, they'll be all right. But, man, I mean, we had one go down. didn't die, but almost died from eating acorns. We've had them just get too too much of a, a certain kind of grass. I mean, it's it's amazing. It takes it's a learning curve. I think you know if you got the land or you can lease some land, raising cattle is a great way to make some money, and it's a it's a good profession. And if even if it's just a, a you know one one a year for yourself, it's it's not a bad idea. But uh, don't think it comes without a learning curve because it really does. And I'm sure there's a bigger learning curve with a with a yak. Anyway, uh, next up, I have a question for John Poog. Well, really not a question. This is an article, and I have a link in the show notes to this article that uh, one of y'all sent me, and I just immediately said, I'm, a, I'm not going to tear it, because I'll blow a gasket if I tear into this. Let's see what John Pugliano has to say about it. John, take it away, man. Hello, TSP listeners. Today, our financial question actually comes in the form of an article that Jack sent me and asked me to comment on. This article, no doubt, came from one of the TSP listeners, and you know, one of the great resources that Jack and I have uh, through our podcast is having all of you as eyes and ears out in the audience that constantly send us information that we might have missed or that we might not be aware of. So I really appreciate that. It really helps me get a good idea of not only what's going on in the news, but also what individual listeners think about those topics. And that really helps me formulate some of my ideas about what's going on with future trends, not so much because of what the article says, but by how people are interpreting that. So I appreciate you sending me that information. I know Jack does as well. A point I want to make about the particular article that Jack sent me and many of the things that I received from people is that there's a big difference between a news article and just marketing BS. Now, I'm a very skeptical, cynical person, and I feel virtually everything that appears in any type of media is not only biased, but has been written for a particular reason to, to manipulate the reader in one way or another. Now, some of those are more journalistic and more scholarly and passing along uh, valuable information. Others are just pure, unadulterated BS marketing. And you should be developing your critical thinking skills and your situational awareness to be able to identify these things, particularly as they relate to the investment world, so that you don't get ripped off. The particular article that Jack asked me to comment on, it was about the Dow Jones Industrial Average hitting 50,000 points. You know, that's more than twice from where we are right now. It's a compelling headline. When I first started to read the article, I thought it might be some hyped up, happy talk on Wall Street. You see, it isn't that I'm not optimistic and I don't think that the Dow Jones Industrial Average is going to hit 50,000 points. I absolutely 100% guarantee you that it will. I just don't know if it's going to do that next month, next year, or within the next decade. And so I get very skeptical when I hear people saying that that's going to happen in the next you know, 12 months or 24 months because that's more than doubling of where we are right now when the market is extremely high valuations. So as I started to read the first few sentences of this article, I was formulating in my mind some type of a mindset along along those lines. But as I read just a couple lines, I realized that, no, this wasn't even a happy talk rationalization of, of how the market can go higher. This was pure, unadulterated marketing. 
And it doesn't really matter where this appeared or what the specific topic was, because the formula is always the same. The article starts out with some type of, of a provocative title to attract your attention. The first few lines or maybe even first few paragraphs will quote some experts, present you with some reasonable material, and then set up some type of a straw man argument so that they've kept your attention and they can lead you into the next section, which is going to be where they introduce some type of an expert. Now, it could be a hedge fund manager or some Wall Street guru, or if they're going to predict that the economy is going to collapse or the dollar is going to go to zero, then, you know, maybe they'll introduce an ex-CIA agent or some type of a secret government official, but it's always some type of an expert. They're going to pump up his credentials and tell you about how this person has some kind of secret or insider information that you need to know. Because if you know that information, you're either going to make a lot of money on the stock market or on buying precious metals or on buying some other type of uh, you know piece of equipment that's going to keep you alive in the zombie apocalypse. And then the next step is to get you to click on some kind of a link that'll probably take you to some long drawn out video, which will play at infinitum. And it's one of those kind of things where it's kind of hard to get back out of once you're in it. There's no little timeline across the bottom to tell you whether it's going to last for 30 seconds or 30 minutes. And the whole content of the video is just going to go on and go on and go on. It's going to tell you what an expert this person is, how they have so much insight, how they've been so incredibly right in the past, what a great forecaster they are. And then they're going to hit you up with some kind of call to action. Buy their newsletter, buy a particular product, invest in a precious metal, or invest in some penny stock. Well, in my opinion, these things are all scams. Now, they're not necessarily illegal. Most of them aren't. A lot of them walk right down the line of legality, and they really split hairs. But for the most part, they're not illegal, but they're also totally worthless. They present themselves as providing you with knowledgeable information that you need, and then they funnel you into buying some type of product or service that you don't need. Now, hey, I am a 100% believer in the free market. I make my living from selling a service. I'm not opposed to people marketing and selling their products and services. But I don't believe in selling things through unrealistic hype or gloom and doom. I don't want to prey on someone's emotions and fears. I want to present a rational argument and let the consumer choose for themselves. In the particular article that Jack forwarded me, the supposed expert was trying to make a pitch that robotics and automation and the Internet of Everything is going to make big companies so profitable that, you know, just in the next year or less, the Dow Jones Industrial Average is, is going to suddenly more than double. Now, you know that Jack and I have been talking for a lot of years about the major changes that are going to happen and occur to the economy because of automation. In fact, I've been researching and studying this topic to such an extent that I've written a book about it, and Jack's going to have me on the show in the not-too-distant future to talk about it. But the point is, is that none of us can predict the future. And while a lot of really great things are going to happen from automation, a lot of really bad things are going to happen as well. In the article that Jack sent me, the, the supposed expert was really playing up the profitability end of how automation is really going to help and make large companies more efficient. I totally believe that. I do think profits are going to skyrocket. But at the same time, all that efficiency, all that productivity, if it does happen and if it happens quickly, well, it's going to come at the expense of employees. 
The reason companies are going to be so profitable and so much more efficient and productive is because they're going to fire a bunch of people. And yes, that will definitely help the bottom line at virtually every company. But the darker side to that is that if there is 25 or 35 or 50 or 75 percent unemployment, if everybody is losing their job, then ultimately these companies can't be profitable because there won't be anybody left to buy their products. They'll be firing employees, but they'll also be losing consumers. So that's the two-edged sword of technology. But none of us can predict the future and know how smoothly or how disruptively that's going to occur and whether it's going to happen in 18 months or whether it's going to happen in two decades. We just don't know. We certainly don't know with the assurity that these BS marketing pieces that try to get passed off as news portray to us. So to protect yourself from getting sucked into this marketing BS, know how to identify it. Look for the provocative headline. Look for the copywriting that's trying to suck you in with some exclusive or special insider knowledge from a proclaimed expert. And then look for that hook where they're trying to call you to action and get you to click on something or get you to buy something. Most of it's BS. Don't fall for it. Use your critical thinking skills. Well, hey, Jack, thanks for the opportunity to comment on this article. For the expert counsel, this is John Pugliano of Investable Wealth. He, he did a better job of keeping his cool than I would have if I would have handled it personally. Um, let me throw a little addition in here. Um, the, the company that, that put this piece out is called Banyan Hill. They are, this is what they do. It just constantly sleeves merchanting, uh, investment advice. And, um, they're, they're, I would say they're one of the, the, the sleaziest, but the sleaziest of all is Porter Stansberry and Stansberry Research and all the associated brands with Porter Stansberry. Complete scumbag. And, uh, it's a standard thing. And usually there's like one special stock or two special stocks. And if you just knew about these, and what they're, they're doing is they're, 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 they're gambling that you want to know so bad by the end of their pitch. You'll pay the money even if you cancel the membership or whatever. You'll pay that first fee just to find out. And the reality is some of you will. <clears throat> so I want to give you a resource where you won't have to anymore. The next time you get one of these and it's like this, this stock is going to triple and quadruple and do whatever. Um, you can go to a website called Stock Gumshoe, S-T-O-C-K-G-U-M-S-H-O-E, and almost every single one of these things, as soon as they come out, this guy reverse engineers who they are and publicly says, the guy that Porter Stansberry talking about or the company Porter Stansberry is talking about is this company here. And uh, it, it, it's pretty cool. It, I, I don't remember how I found it, but it's pretty cool. Um, they do have a premium membership program, uh, but... You know, it may be worth it. I've never really looked into it. I've just known sometimes when I've read one of these bullshit things, and I'm like, I wonder what company you're talking about. I'll go check these guys. Usually within a day of a or day or two of these people launching their bullshit, this guy's got it figured out. He's really good at it because they give away so much information about the company that if you know what to look for, you can just basically reverse engineer it. So again, the company's the, the website is called StockGumshoe.com, like gumshoe like a detective. And I do have a link in the show notes. And now you will never be tempted to uh, give away your hard-earned money just to figure out what one of these special companies are. And I'll just add this to it. If these people whose goal in life is to make as much money as they can, which that goal I don't have a problem with, the execution is what I have a problem with, knew that the stock, this stock, that stock, the other stock, 
was going to quadruple in value, and they positively and they were as good as they say they were, they'd be making so much money investing, they wouldn't have time to be writing long sales copy and making uh, rip-off scam videos. I mean, if and here's the other thing. If you really believe that the, the Dow's going to go to 50,000, just buy a freaking index fund and lay back and relax. It's just stupid. Don't buy into it. Next one I have is a question for Erica Strauss about using whey to kickstart a ferment and little misunderstanding about what lacto-fermentation actually is. Hello, TSP. This is Erica Strauss, author of The Hands-On Home and occasional blogger at Northwest Edible Life, nwedible.com, calling in to answer Adam's question this week on using whey in a lacto-ferment. Now, uh, the last time I was on TSP, I was answering a question about lacto-fermented salsa. And the one of the recipes I have on my website for lacto-fermented salsa calls for an addition of whey. And that got Adam researching. And he says, I have found that some people are just adding salt to a recipe and calling it a lacto-ferment. However, your recipe calls for whey from live and active culture yogurt. Could you help me understand why adding the culture is important and why some people don't add whey and still call their product lacto-fermented. I've read a few ebooks and watched some videos on the matter and I haven't found anyone that explains it. Thank you in advance, Adam. Well, Adam, I would love to field this question because it's really common and it's unfortunate that people um are finding are, are not finding people who can explain it well, I will say, because the answer is actually pretty simple. You just have to get your head around some sort of confusing naming things. So I'll just start out with the most important part. You don't need yogurt whey. You do not need yogurt whey or any other type of whey or any other type of starter culture to lacto-ferment vegetables ever at all. I don't care what my recipe from six years ago or something says, you do not need whey for fermentation. So to answer your next question, why is adding the culture important? Well, it isn't. I mean, in a specific recipe like the one I gave, if the whey is called for, it might be needed for that recipe. But at a meta level, right, lacto-fermentation does not require a separate culture way addition of anything like that. And beyond that, I, I will guarantee you that there are ways to modify recipes that call for whey or another type of added culture to remove that from the ingredient list to get you back to basically just your, your vegetable ingredients and a salt brine. Now on to your question about why people can call ferments made without whey lacto-fermented. Well, the lacto in this case comes from the name of the beneficial bacteria that preserve lacto-fermented foods. And you guys who have been hearing me on the expert council for a while have heard this before, but I will be very brief and um, try and keep this moving. The bacteria that do this fermentation are called lactic acid bacteria. And these bacteria make lactic acid when they eat sugars. Nearly all of the microbes we want to encourage in lacto-fermentation come from this family. And one of the most famous bacteria groups within the lactic acid bacteria family um, are called lactobacillus. I mean, from our perspective as fermenters, the lactobacillus are really important. 
the bacteria called lactobacillus, which is literally milk bacillus, have that name because they were first identified as the bacteria that sours milk. But this family of bacteria is not limited to a milk diet. And there is some member of the clan that has evolved to happily chow down on almost any form of simple or complex carbohydrates and convert those carbohydrates into lactic acid. Now, as you guys probably know, that excreted lactic acid pushes the pH of our ferments lower and lower, preserving it through a natural form of pickling. The lactic acid bacteria microbes, including lactobacillus, exist already on any fresh vegetable. They're kind of like yeast in that they're just everywhere in the environment. And they are also uniquely tolerant of a high salt environment. So when we lacto-ferment, what we do is we set up the environment, oxygen-free and moderately high in salt, and we let the natural lactic acid bacteria proliferate and grow and dominate the microbial profile of the ferment. So essentially, the creation of the ferment is a byproduct of creating the right environment for the right microbes. So while lactic acid bacteria named after milk are necessary for a lacto-ferment, milk itself is not. One last emphasis here. The lacto in the ferment's name, again, refers to lactobacillus, the bacteria, not lactose, the milk product. And people who claim that whey or other dairy starters are needed and necessary to ferment vegetables are frankly wrong. And from now on, you have my permission to completely ignore them. And people who say that you don't need whey to ferment vegetables are right, and they're more likely to be people you should listen to. So if that's the case, why do some recipes call for active culture whey at all? Well, it's a jump starter, basically. If you use whey from a live and active fermented product like yogurt or a natural fermented sour cream, you're introducing a pre-grown, ready-to-go colony of billions, and I mean literally billions, of friendly, viable lactic acid bacteria to your ferment. And this tends to make the ferment move a lot faster. It kind of jump starts, it gets it up and going, and it can help to ensure that you create an environment that is dominated by those beneficial bacteria really quickly. Now, any home brewers out there will understand this concept. It's the same difference between pitching a packet of dry yeast directly into a carboy versus growing out a yeast starter the day before and pitching that in. With an active, huge, bubbling colony of yeast, your fermentation of your wort in the carboy is going to start faster and start stronger. But I will say that one major difference between brewing with yeast and fermenting with the lactic acid bacteria is that in the case of lacto-fermentation, um, a faster fermentation isn't always better. And many fermenters, myself included, have actually found that a salt-only, slower brine ferment can lead to a better long-term texture for the ferment. So this is a bit of a preference issue, but um, personally, I've gone away from whey. I've gone away from whey in my ferments almost entirely. That said, there are cases where you might want to jumpstart your lactobacillus, like start it off strong in the ferment. For example, if you are planning a very fast ferment, something that'll just take a couple of days on the countertop, like the salsa recipe that you're talking about, a starter of whey can be very helpful to get that fermentation going strong quickly. And if you are fermenting something really thick and condimenty like, like a ketchup or a chutney, then adding that extra boost of lactic acid bacteria can be helpful 
helpful because without a sort of proper brine, the lactic acid just has a hard time moving through and colonizing the ferment. And then there's the issue of salt. You can reduce the salt levels in your ferment down to about half the level you'd otherwise want if you incorporate a big kicker of whey along with the salt. This is because if you are already carpet bombing your ferment with the beneficial bacteria that you want, you don't have to worry quite so much about setting up an environment that favors only lactic acid salt tolerant bacteria. And then conversely, you can typically take any whey inclusive ferment and you can adjust the salt in such a way as to no longer need that whey jumpstart, that added culture jumpstart. So for more information about exactly how much salt you should add if you want to skip the whey altogether in almost any recipe, lacto-fermentation recipe, um, listen to my segment on salt quantities for ferments from TSP episode 1984. I go into that and I kind of go into the formula that I use that's pretty foolproof. Um, so honestly, when it comes to added whey, like I said, I hardly ever bother personally anymore. I just don't think there's much advantage. But if you do have a situation where that microbial power boost makes sense, um, please do remember that your whey must come from something like yogurt that has already been lacto-fermented. There is absolutely no advantage if you try to use whey from something that isn't already fermented. Uh, for example, if you make cheese, you end up with a ton of whey. And I've seen recipes that call for whey from making ricotta to be added to lacto-ferments. This just doesn't make any sense. There's no additional beneficial bacteria in whey from an unfermented pasteurized dairy product. Um, but sometimes people just repeat what they've seen and they go all whey is the same and they don't think about the difference between whey from yogurt versus whey from ricotta. And you get into these situations where, you know, People need to question is really what I'm saying. So, Adam, I hope this answers your questions about the hows and whys of ways in lacto-fermentation and about the confusing naming issue that really has so many people thinking they do need yogurt to make their pickles, which, again, you don't. So thank you for your question, Adam. And, guys, please do keep your questions coming. I'm happy to really tackle all your productive homekeeping questions on food preservation and natural home and personal care and kind of classic home economics issues. And kind of on a personal note, I took about a year off of blogging for personal and family reasons and a little bit health reasons, and I'm just kind of back in the headspace to write and share again. So no promises for tons of new content, but if it's been a while, do feel free to come by and say hi at my website, which is nwedible.com, Northwest Edible Life. Okay, not super long this week, but I think that covers Adam's question. So um, again, this has been Erica Strauss for your TSP Expert Council. Um, thanks to Jack. Thanks to Adam. Thanks to all you guys out there listening. Have a great weekend, and I will chat with you in a couple of weeks. Great stuff and uh, covered it just absolutely perfectly. Uh, guys, I need I'm just a little announcement here. I need more questions for council members. I got a ton that I sent to Patrick Rohrman. He's going to officially be on the council. Um, our, our guest yesterday, uh, Brandon Todd, I've actually invited him to join the council. He'll be here soon. I have a, a new member of the council. We'll have another woman on the council soon, very, very soon. Uh, but we're going to hold off on her introduction until she has her interview that's coming up next month, or later in this month, actually. So I'm bringing some new blood in, but we've got a great team here. Uh, I think I've got some questions out to the council, but as of this morning, I think i got one in the queue for next week. So get them to me. I'll get them out to everybody by Monday morning, and hopefully we'll have a whole new lineup of stuff uh, this coming week, next week. 
Next question I have here is for Chef Keith Snow on cooking mutton. What's mutton? Well, it's lamb, except it ain't lamb anymore because it grew up into a sheep before we killed it. That's what mutton is. I actually, in many ways, prefer mutton to lamb. A mutton chop is just, I love mutton chops, man. They're hard to find, too. Anyway, let's go ahead and hear from Chef Keith on cooking mutton. Hey, it's Chef Keith Snow with HarvestEating.com and TastyEducation.com. Wanted to give the real-world redneck some information on cooking mutton. Before I get into that, uh, some people get confused about lamb and mutton and what they are. Generally, when uh, a sheep is a year or younger, they call it lamb, um, you know, lang of lamb. This is something that's usually even, you know, quite a bit younger than that. I've had some neighbors that used to raise lambs, and I can't quite remember when they would harvest them, but it was definitely before a year. Now, um, as the animal ages and becomes an adult, they refer to the meat as, as mutton. Um, this is consumed much more in other parts of the world than it is here in the United States, although it's definitely catching on. Now, Chris, this real-world redneck dude, he's got some sheep that uh, needed to be processed because they didn't want to stay in his fences. That's definitely a sign that they need to be eaten. So um, I want to give you a suggestion for cooking this mutton in, uh, in a curry style. Now, there's several very popular ways to cook mutton and usually you see mediterranean style stuff and then um this kind of bengali or, or indian curry is also very popular and oftentimes in india when they say mutton it could be goat so keep that in mind but this is what i want you to do and it's it may sound a teeny bit complicated but stick with me and i'm going to probably post this recipe up on the TSP Facebook page. So do a peek for that later. Now you're going to need some spices. Now, uh, Chris, I don't know where you live, um, but there's got to be a place where you can get some good spices. And oftentimes a supermarket is the worst place because those tend to not be the freshest and also the most expensive. If you live near a natural food store and you can look for glass bottles or glass containers of spices, sometimes that's the best route. There's a brand called Frontier. Also, sometimes they sell you know little packages of, of spices, and that's the place to buy them. So you are going to need cardamom pod, um, ground cloves, cinnamon, cumin powder, coriander powder, ch red chili powder, turmeric, garam masala. This is a very common um, mix of spices. Then you're going to need a couple of bay leaves, and that's going to be your spice mixture. So what I want you to do is take a large pot. You're going to take one large red onion, and you're going to cut that thing in half and then slice it up finely. You're going to have two um, bay leaves, and then you're going to have about a half a cup of ghee, G-H-E-E. -E. And for those of you that don't know, ghee is basically clarified butter, uh, very commonly used in India. Ghee is um, just a huge ingredient. You can make your own by taking a pound of butter, chopping it into cubes, and putting it into a saucepan um, over a low to medium heat. And what's going to happen, eventually it's going to start bubbling pretty quickly. Um, you'll see bubbles and foam all over the top. Keep cooking it until you can see that it's clearly separated. The solids will separate and you'll have um, basically ghee. Now what you need to do is what I do is turn it off, let it cool slightly, take a slotted spoon and carefully 
uh, grab the stuff that's on the top and discard it. And then you want to pour the whole mixture through cheesecloth, a couple of layers of cheesecloth um, in a little colander. Just pour it through, and the golden, wonderful-looking liquid that comes out the bottom will be ghee. So in your large sauce pot um, over a medium-high heat, put the ghee in there. When it warms up, toss in the onions and the bay leaves. Now, this should be a pretty type affair, really, you know, hot, going pretty good. And stir this for about three minutes and then toss in all the spices. So your cinnamon, your cumin, coriander, chili powder, turmeric, garam masala, uh, all that goes in. And you're going to cook that for about a minute. And then you're going to throw in two tablespoons of garlic paste, two tablespoons of ginger paste. And you're going to cook this stuff for a minute or two, turn off the heat, remove the pot from the heat, and allow this mixture to cool down. And once it cools completely down, you're going to add one cup of plain yogurt. Don't be getting, you know, that wacky flavored yogurt. Just cheap. It could be Dannon, anything. Um, plain yogurt. So you put a cup of the plain yogurt in there. Um, then you're going to also add a quarter teaspoon of white pepper to this mixture. Mix the whole thing up, and this should be at room temperature. You should be able to get your hands in there and mix it up. Now take your leg of mutton, put it on a cutting board, and take this entire mixture with your hands and really get in there and rub it all over. It should be caked and coated, and if you've got the bone, even better. So rub everything with this mixture. Pile it on top, whatever you need to do, and then wrap it up really well or put it in a big dish or plate, I don't know what size this thing is, and then you want to refrigerate it overnight. So the next day, what you're going to do is turn your oven, preheat the oven to 200 degrees. This is a pretty slow oven. So once it's at 200 degrees, you take your leg of mutton and any collected stuff and put it into a, a roasting dish or a Dutch oven, anything that it'll fit in, and then you want to cover it. Well, before you cover it, you want to put in two cups of stock. Now, if you've got all this mutton, you probably have some bones and hopefully you can make a little uh, mutton or lamb stock with this. This is going to be the best choice. And you can simply put the bones in there with some onions, carrots, celery, bay leaves, and simmer it for a few hours. If you don't have that or you don't want to mess with it, some two, two cups of vegetarian broth would work or chicken broth, whatever. Put the broth in there, put the leg of lamb, and cover it very tightly so it's kind of, uh, so it's not going to evaporate everything off. Once it's covered tightly, put it into that preheated 200 degree oven for four to five hours. That's a long, slow cook. What's going to happen is this thing is going to become magic in there with those spices. Um, just, incredible and very, very tender. Now check it at five hours, check it at four hours. I mean, if it's really fork tender, you know, where it's going to kind of shred a little bit, you're ready to go. Um, and you can cook it for as long or, you know, you, you can cook it to the point where it's still sliceable. However, I like to take it further than that. Now, when it's done, take it to the cutting board and any juices, all that mixture, there's going to be quite a bit of stuff in the bottom of your uh, roasting dish. Put that into little serving cups because you're going to use that. So then you want to cook some basmati rice and uh, you can find that in any store. So cook it to the package directions and cook a bunch of it, like four cups of rice to start with. And then for that, you'd need eight cups of water or you could use the lamb broth if you have it. Um, 
or just vegetarian broth in place of the water, or just water, no big deal. Once the rice is cooked, serve this thing family style. Take a big platter, put the rice um, out, and then take your wonderful uh, mutton and nestle it on top there, and then take some of those um, resting juices and the stuff from the pan. You could spoon a little of that over the top. And then just put a cup of those, um, that liquid there and then people could break it off and have the rice and, and the whole thing. And this is, uh, an amazing way to serve this. Now, the reason it really excels with these flavor components that are, you know, definitely Indian is because sometimes these older animals can have, uh, quite a gamey flavor to them. And this really kind of, um, takes that in, in check and, um, it doesn't cover it up. I mean, you're still going to taste you know, strong flavor of meat, which is terrific. I mean, don't, um, you don't want something bland. I mean, this is what's so great about these meats is that they have a lot of flavor. And when you have this amazing Indian spice mixture all over it and the whole, you know, don't skimp on the, the marinating. I mean, if you're going to marinate this thing, dude, for two hours and cook it and then tell me it stinks, it's on you. I said overnight, and this is key to allow that uh, mixture to kind of permeate, uh, permeate as best as possible into your meat. Also, the slow cooking really helps to tenderize it and make it into something quite magical. So, yeah, that's uh, that's the deal there. And uh, I hope that this real-world redneck will become, um, you know, a worldly chef with this dish. And uh, big thanks to the uh, redneck duck farmer. That would be Jack. And that's uh, that's a term of endearment jack by the way so i hope that that helps chris and uh, i wanted to encourage everybody to check out my new website that is tastyeducation.com where you where you will find the food storage feast and if you're an msb member go to your benefits section and click there and that is uh, the lowest published price for the course i also have just um, started to publish my paleo beef course this is going to be over 20 incredible recipes uh, for people that are following the paleo diet that involve beef. I've got four or five already posted, so I am accepting enrollments there. Do check that out. And if you're interested, you can get a special deal on the paleo uh, beef course in combination with the food storage feast. So check that out. Go to tastyeducation.com. I appreciate everybody's support um, definitely in this new venture as I um build this thing up so that's it chris enjoy the lamb or the mutton whatever you want to call it man maybe it's maybe it's two days over a year so now it is mutton officially but either way enjoy it jack thanks everybody have a great weekend take care yeah now i'm hungry um i don't have an amazon item of the day for you guys today uh, but i do have a suggestion here that you can get on amazon from one of chef's ingredients and that is ginger paste um, I do a lot of Asian-influenced cooking, especially with meats and seafoods uh, and, and soups as well, it's like, so especially seafood soups, uh, curries and things like that as well. And ginger paste is a, is a great thing to have on hand you know, for a lot of this stuff. And I have been absolutely disappointed over and over again with various ginger paste. The one that I found on, that's on Amazon is called Laxmi, L-A-X-M-I. And it is fantastic. An 8-ounce jar, which will last you a long freaking time, is like 11 bucks with free shipping on Prime. Um, so I have a link in the show notes to it today. Um, it, it has 
mostly good reviews. It's got like 12% one-star reviews, though I, I don't really don't get the people. You know, I guess it's a taste is a subjective thing, uh, but this stuff is um, this stuff is is great. I, I've had great results cooking with it. And uh, I, I have found it to be the best-tasting, most flavorful uh, ginger paste that I can find. You always have the op option of making up some of your own. It's not really hard to do. But if you want it in a jar, this is what I recommend. Uh, I have it in my fridge, and I, I've used it just this last week. And I, I've had the jar for, I guess, three months now. And it's probably half empty. It's just as good as the day I got it. Again, it's called Laxmi, L-A-X-M-I. You can check it out in the show notes today. Um, and I def definitely recommend you explore kind of that Asian trio, uh, or even I'd say quadro, all right? You, have, uh, you know, garlic, chili, uh, ginger, and lemongrass. Those, those four things do amazing things with just about anything you could ever want to cook. Uh, next up, I have a question for Michael Jordan about kind of the, the seasons according to the beekeeper, what we should be doing each month throughout the year as beekeepers. Michael, take it away. <clears throat> well, this is Michael Jordan, the bee whisperer of a bee-friendly company. I'm based out of Cheyenne, Wyoming, and I'm taking your questions here on the Survival Podcast on bees, apiary management, and the making of mead. So I have a, an interesting question. And it kind of goes with the beginning of the season, so it's pretty cool. It's done by Charlie. Charlie asked Michael, is there a beekeeper's calendar that you're aware of that shows what task a new beekeeper should be doing throughout the year? He says, I realize a calendar like this would have to be adapted to each region within the United States, but it sure would be handy. Uh, I live near Atlanta, so I've been asked a question generally, so there would be applicable for uh, my community. Thanks, Charlie. Well, Charlie, my man, I've enclosed a copy of the seasons that I teach. It's broad. There are many things to add depending on location, the outcome one is looking for, and the profile of the hives for that location. The seasons of the beekeeper are easy and can get very complex depending on what your outcome and outlook is for your apiary. Um, so you look as it look at it you, you can look at it like four seasons you have spring when we're setting up and getting ready for the girls for the hive or we're feeding the ones that we've got and getting them ready for honey flow or you've got summer where we're checking the hives making sure that all is well and honey and pollen is coming in we've got fall where we're closing down shop and winterizing hives and we have winter where we're doing general checks and making sure the hives are alive But when it comes to month to month, you need to kind of figure out what are you doing. Well, we teach the 9-11 method, and you should be checking your highs every 9 to 11 days. Because uh, And the reason we do 9-11 is that a hive will cap a queen in 9 days. So if you do not want to lose your hives from swarming, you check them. So I'll, I'll kind of go over a list. Uh, like I said, I will enclose this identical... or. This list, I'm going to be a little more broad on the show because it takes a long time to go through the list. But it's pretty general. And it kind of goes through what we're expecting, what we're going to be doing. So in January, you know, the bees are going to consume about 24 pounds of their storage in January. So in January, you need to weigh the hive and see what it's lost 
from December, from your last year. Like you, you, you know, you finished your year. You want to check to see what they've what they've eaten from December fifteenth till about January fifteenth, right? So when you're checking your beehive two to three times in January, you're just basically looking to make sure that the bees are warm. So you need to kind of get like a oh a thermo vision scope or a a thermo gun that is going to tell the temperature of the hive. You're going to weigh your beehive. You're going to see what it's weighing out, and that way you can tell if they've they've eaten food source. Or if you need to do emergency feeding, and if the temperatures are good, if you need to warm them up or move them, and do other things like that. So basically, it's just a general, general check on your bees. You should be reading books at this time, studying for exams, maybe checking your new laws every year. Um, you know, this is a good time that if you're just starting out to go to an allergist to see if you can, you know, take a bee sting. You know, since you're studying your laws and your stuff, you need to check. We do a thing with the permaethos called our bees for me. And that goes over your laws. Can you take a sting and stuff? Go over your history, your exams. And, and you should be doing that. You should be prepping for your year. You should be picking out your location where you'd like to move your hives to or fixing up the grounds as it's dry around your beehives so it's easier to work them. You want to get all your do-it-yourself things done, you know, building your hives, prepping your ground area. You're just trying to get an advance on your beekeeping season. When February comes, you remember the bees are going to consume 24 pounds of their honey storage in February. So between January 15th and February 15th, you should be checking to see if they have enough food. And remember, I said checking them 9, 11 days. If you're checking them basically every 9 to 11 days, if you're weighing your beehives, you should start building a chart, and you'll be able to see exactly what they're eating every 9 to 11 days. Like I said, bees usually eat about 24 pounds a month. So weigh them. Check the temperatures. Don't open the hive. Weigh it. Right uh, right now is a good, a good time to check on like your varroa count and plan if your treatments are necessary. Some people in February already start uh, olic inoculation. Um, if you're a new beekeeper, this is a good time to order your new bees. You need to read and make a plan for the next six months. And this means how I'm going to do swarm controlling, when I'm going to feed, when I'm going to split hives, when I'm going to close down hives. So you need to start making out a plan based on that 9-11 method, what I'm going to do. Because once you start checking them, it's going to be 9 to 11 days because a, a queen's going to be capped in 9 days, and in 14 days she hatches. So if you're checking your bees every two weeks, you're going to miss it. So we go 9-11. So this will help with your swarm management and stuff. This is a good time that if your equipment's damaged or broken, you can order your equipment and bees or start fixing and and, and repairing what you have, painting, doing stuff like that. March, March is your time to enroll in classes, looking for local meetings, um, logging your bee, GPS locating your, your bees location for your agriculture department, um, taking your tests for bee certifications. I know Washington State has even like almost like a raptor program that for your bees that if you're if you're going getting into falconry and stuff, you have to be mentored and you have to do it for so many years. And I think Washington State has that, that you have to work with a beekeeper for so long and then you have to take a test in order for you to get your bees. So now's a good time to start taking those tests. Um, 
make sure you have all your parts that you need. March is a great time to do that because the bees are going to be coming. Um, now's a great time to observe the entrance of your beehives to see if any bees are bringing any pollen in at all, if they're doing their cleaning flights, if they're finding water locations. Right? Uh, often bees die from starvation, so you should finish weighing your hives. And now's a good time to start introducing liquid feed to them because it's not going to really freeze the liquid feed all the way. Right, so when the weather's warming up, you need to go ahead and start feeding them liquid feed and doing your weigh checks and just getting ready for your year. Remember, you can remove mouse guards at this time and really just start your record keeping. April, well, it's bee friendly and you should be planting flowers. Right, You should be doing your varola mite checks, either cutting off brood drone below your frames or putting in drone inserts to start hatching out mites to capture them. You can change out your brood boxes and floors if you decide to here in April because your bees are coming. So this is a good time to probably do your first checks, cleaning out your bottom boards, making sure the bees are still good and living. Remember, check every 9 to 11 days. This is a good time to start seeing if there's any queen brood patterns. Um, you know, it's a, it's a good time to, like, prep that I'm going to unwinter these hives. And this is basically for zones, I would say, 3 to 5. Because when you get from 5 and 9, you've probably already been out of winter and you've unwintered your hives and you're feeding them and they're already bringing in pollen and nectar flow and starting to do honey. If you're in Texas, uh, maybe in Atlanta, Florida and reasons like that. It's probably warm enough now where you're probably already starting your honey flow season in April. So anything that's over 45 degrees, the bees are working. And you just need to start practicing good apiary hygiene. Um, if the bees show any indication of swarming or anything at this time, it's time to get up your swarm traps. Uh, you should uh, remove any supers for ex uh, that are extra. And you need to start putting in supers that are for nectar flow that sometimes we remove brood boxes at this time, making them so they have two brood boxes instead of three, or if they've overfilled one brood box, you're going to another before you start putting your honey flow. You just want to make sure, basically, that there's enough space for the bees to grow and not too much to where they only stay in one area because there's too much room. Um, a good time right now in April is if you find your queens, you should mark them for the year. Right? I think uh, 2017 is a yellow year. And that kind of gets you started. Uh, right now, it's you know it's May. We're ending up in May, and right now your swarm trap should be out. Uh, but now is a good time to really get the feed going, weighing your hives to see how, if they're starting to draw some of that feed that you're putting in. Um, this would probably be your last varroa mite treatment if you're doing varroa mite treatment. Um, it's also that. Basically, we're doing our lot. This is, you know, after Mother's Day, basically, we're going to start weaning off the feed and we're prepping for uh, honey flow. So, this is the last round of feed because you're probably coming out of Darth and they've probably really starting to brood. So, make sure your swarm traps are up. Then you get into June, you're inspecting your hives, filling out your sheets, installing wasp traps, hornet traps, ant traps, doing some basic predator control. And if you have queens in her third year, you're creating a nuke with her. Um, this will not reduce the number of bees available for queen loss colony. That you know, usually June and July's nectar flow. So if you have, if you start making nukes now, 
you're reducing swarming uh, through the season, and you're getting ready that if you have weaker hives, you can marry those back in towards the end of the year. Um, this is a good time to install queen excluders in your honey boxes. Like I said, this is going to be your honey flow now is through June. Uh, when you get into July, like I said, you're still expecting 9-11, uh, watching your records. You're watching for some robbing from your weaker hives. Um, this is a good month to requeen with queens that you've mated and get them so that if the broods are slowing down or not coming out what you want, you're going to force them now by getting in a new, stronger queen for the year. Uh, late July, early August is usually when the nectar flow stops on heavy levels, so you just want to watch and make sure in July that they're still bringing in lots of nectar and flowers because July and August is the hottest part of the year, and a lot of places, if it's not humid, the floral's dying, so that's some stuff to think of. You know, August is the time to inspect and start pulling off all your supers and downsizing the hives, making it better for everybody uh, so the bees have less space to heat up. September, right, you're spinning all the rest of the honey. You're starting to introduce liquid feeds to the beehives, getting them ready for wintering. Uh, the colonies should be disease-free. You should start doing massive inspections to make sure before you go into winter that you're taking care of all your hives. You get into October, right, you're going to winterize them, finishing off liquid feed, uh, putting covers and wraps on them or your heaters or whatever you need to do to winterize them. Uh, end of October, beginning of November, you put on your mouse guard traps, make sure so there's airflow or putting on your quilting boxes, and basically you're winterizing it so that there's no like woodpeckers attacking your hives or things like that. Because when you get in November, you're going to start introducing fondant cake to winterize them. You're going to do uh, a varroa count real quick to see if you need to do treatment before winter happens. You're checking to make sure there's no brood. And then in December, you're basically done. right? They're just going to be living on fondant, and you're weighing your hives. Because remember, they're going to be eating about 24 pounds of feed December, January, and February. And that's basically what you're looking for through the months. But like I said, I've enclosed this uh, in there. And, and you're correct. It has to do with your location, your season, what you're expecting. If you're looking for wax production, honey production, colony growth, splits. I mean, there's there's so much that, that, that go into seasonal change. But in your seasons, you're looking to start out, grow, get into honey flow, downsize, feed, and winterize. And that's basically what you're looking for. So hopefully this has helped out. Hopefully the little stuff that I've enclosed that Jack will throw out will help you out. Uh, I know this went a little long and it sounded like I'm rambling, but I'm just kind of going through like basic things that you should be looking for to get going. Um, I'm Michael Jordan. I hope to see some of you at Danielle Freeman's uh, family farm in Calhoun, Colorado. We're having a three-day beekeeping course. It's, it's going to be actually crazy fun. Uh, Greg Burns from the Ohio Lumber Squatches is actually coming from Ohio uh, to the community. I, I believe we have some people from Montana and uh, a couple places uh, out of Colorado that are also coming. So if, if you had a, got a ticket to come and drink mead and learn uh, basic beekeeping skills and some pretty advanced stuff that we kind of teach on uh, you know, uh, record keeping, we'd love to have you. So... You know, uh, I know Benton from Neoteric Farms is coming. We just did an incredible mead-making course at his place. So if you find one of our courses, you should come. Super fun, super exciting. So I'm telling you, buy your honey from a beekeeper respect. 
buy from a cottage industry because that's where I started and help your fellow man. Because one day, just like we're giving out this information, hell, I might need help too. Great stuff from Michael Jordan. Uh, and I have a question I'm going to try to have a little bit of fun with and provide a little bit of education with and a little bit of context with for the end today. I have a question here from Brian in Oregon. And his question itself is a little bit humorous. He says, Hi, Jack, question. What will be the final incidents that will marginalize the social justice warrior mentality in society? Details. I was thinking about this while at the gym this morning at 6 a.m. What will be the final nail in the coffin for the social justice warrior movement that drives people away due to its ridiculousness? I thought of two kinds of funny ones. One, the day that the people in the movement start to want to add another letter to the LGBTQ, an acronym. By the way, the Q for questioning just doesn't make sense already. Isn't B for bisexual questioning already? Anyway, the letter would be S for straight, because eventually there will be a cry out, the straight members of the movement are being ignored to have a right to exist, so with all the people covered, we'd see them ridiculed, because in the end, LBG... LGBTQS equals being human. Hmm. I always thought the Q was for queer, and I've wondered why uh, you needed gay and queer. And I've heard a lot of people, and I don't mean that in an offensive way, I just mean I've heard a lot of people in the movement say, you know, I'm queer, get used to it or whatever, and it's like, well, I didn't know it meant for questioning. It just, okay, fine. I, wow, okay, I learned something today. I don't know if it does me any good, but I learned something today. Social justice, number two, social justice will fade into obscurity the day they take up the char charge that public restrooms need to have bi-directional toilet seats. I mean, you can't expect to pe make people face one direction when using a toilet, for gosh sake. It's not right to discriminate against the backward sitters wanting to use a toilet tank as a reading stand for their, or for their iPhones to get the latest social justice news. Just wanted to brighten your day, Brian from Oregon. Um, look, there's no doubt that it's actually funny and amusing at times to listen to these people actually talk and realize how stupid they sound. Um, it's no doubt that it's it's completely outrageous when they want you to use pronouns like Z because you don't want to assume somebody's gender. Um, you know now it's kind of reached a fever pitch where they're they're you know turning violent uh, with they don't want people speaking that they don't like what they're going to say, etc. But I think the problem might be that we're giving these people too much attention. That maybe it's just time for us to just stop paying attention to them altogether. Because they really don't affect our lives. So Ann Coulter didn't get to speak at Berkeley. I, I think it's preposterous, but do I really give a shit? Do I care? You know, well, what if somebody else was, I, I, I mean, I really, like, I don't care. I don't care. I, I, these people are just children holding their breath and screaming and throwing tantrums. And it'll all go away and it'll all be back. Um, what'll happen is, when you look, let's say we look at op, op, uh, Occupy Wall Street. That movement. What a lot of people don't know is about 25% of Occupy Wall Street protesters were uh, Gen Xers, not millennials. Okay? But what that means is like 70 plus percent were millennials. See, it's, it's, it's a funny, and the reason those 25% of the uh, people that went to Occupy out of the Gen X group. Could, could be there. I'm not saying whether they should be there or not. I'm not judging. I'm just saying, and I don't mean this to come out harsh, but here's the reality. 
If you don't have a job and you're bit pissed about not having a job and you have a welfare check coming in or an unemployment check coming in or whatever, you can go sit on your ass and stink for a few weeks in a park. You have the time to do it. When people eventually have to get their ass a job and they have to actually go to work and they have to actually worry about putting food on their table and taking care of their spouse, whether that be same sex or, or normal um, or, or what have you, or feeding their kids or whatever, they don't have time for this stupid shit. You know, they might get together once a year to relieve their kicks and put a giant vagina on their head and walk in the streets and protest against Donald Trump or something. But adults, grown adults with jobs and careers, do not have time to be out screaming and yelling in the streets and being pissed off about who's speaking out of college. They just don't have time for it. And the truth is, and we need to be more fair to millennials, I've tried to kind of bring more of this to light lately, the truth is 70%, 80% of these kids don't want anything to do with this stupid shit. The reason you see so much of these social justice idiots is because, well, they're interesting to, to laugh at and mock. So that's what they put on TV. You know, they, they don't... How, imagine this for a news study. Students at the University of Blakakaka went to an assembly today and listened to the people talk and learned something. There was an exchange of ideas... People had their views challenged and were able to ask questions that either cemented their views or made them take a new view. That is all. Back to you, blah, 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 blah. Who the hell would tune in for that? But, you know, professors in Plopakaka University have incited students to be offended by table salt because it's always white and they should put colored salt on there uh, for gender, you know, gender uh, equality. Oh, shit, did I just say that? Ah, oh, damn it. Damn it to hell. Do you know what's going to happen now? That's going to be a thing. That's going to get out. Somebody's going to tell somebody, and that's going to happen next. They're going to be like, I, I just noticed that all the salt is always white, and I found out there's pink salt and gray salt and, and, and yellow salt and... Red, there's red salt. We need to recognize the, 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 the races of all the... Oh, shit, I shouldn't have said that. Okay? But here's what I want you to realize. This isn't new, this stupidity. This, this kind of like over-the-top craziness. Do you know what the feminists in the 1970s movements that were marching in the streets wanted? Okay, one of their, I'm going to read some of their actual demands off a website here. Equal pay for equal work. At least this one sounds reasonable. Okay, I'm not going to pick on it too much. Other, I'm going to point out this. There is equal pay for equal work. There is no wage gap between men and women on any meaningful level. Now, if we look at what do men make on average versus women, well, then there's a wage gap. Because a man is more likely to move up the corporate ladder faster because he's more willing to miss his kid's little leg game and do the extra work required to move up the corporate ladder, and a woman is more likely not to make that sacrifice. Men are more likely to go into fields like engineering, which pay better, and less women go there. So across the aggregate average, there appears to be a wage gap. It doesn't exist. The reality is, and this was the reality 30 years ago too, that when women and men have equal time on the job, equal training, equal knowledge, equal skill, women actually tend to slightly out-earn men, especially in fields like sales, where being a woman has certain advantages when it comes to be able to get in and be seen by decision makers, which in these large corporations are often men. So there is no problem there, but at least it's a reasonable, uh, a reasonable thing. They also wanted equal education and job opportunities. You have equal education and job, but it's still, it's, at least it's reasonable. 
It's reasonable. Like when you hear what they, it's, okay, well, hold on because it's not going to be reasonable anymore. They also wanted free contraception. Not access, free contraception. You see, this whole thing with every health care provider uh, plan, health insurance plan, supposedly has to provide free contraception to women. That's where that all came from. See, they wanted to live a life with no consequences. How much do they want no consequences? Not only did they want you to pay for their birth control. They want to understand this. This is not, we want a right to birth control. That's a totally reasonable thing. You ha, they had it though. Right, let's say they didn't and they said, we should be able to have birth control. Okay. I, I totally agree with you. But I want you to pay for it. No. It's preposterous. Oh, but it gets worse. They wanted free 24 hour community controlled childcare. They wanted daycare that you could just drop your kid off anytime you wanted to go out and use your free birth control. And then if you accidentally ended up with another child, they wanted free on-demand abortions. Because that would make them equal to men. I'm serious, that's what they wanted. They wanted legal and financial independence for women. They already had it. They wanted ending discrimination against lesbians. Let me tell you something. Let me tell you something. I'm going to piss some people off right now. I know it. Um, but you know me. I tell it the honest way. There has never been the discrimination against lesbians that there has been against gay males. I'm not saying there's no discrimination against lesbians. I'm just saying, like, that was always a little bit less discriminatory. It really was. And it, it probably in many ways and places with many people still is. I mean, I, I saw... Males picked on for being effeminate, apparently gay, things like that. I never saw anybody give a woman shit about being gay in my life. But at least it's a reasonable demand. Um, and they wanted freedom for all women from intimidation by the threat or use of male violence. So in other words, they wanted what was illegal to be illegal. I mean, they acted like women were just being punched in the face every time they walked down the street and no one was doing anything about it. This is what they wanted. And think about... Think about a couple of these. Free birth control, free 24-hour community-controlled child care. They wanted to be able to just drop their kid off whenever they wanted, and free abortion on demand. Free abortion. And when you get pregnant, you don't want a kid, you just get a free abortion. That's And they were serious. They really felt that they were oppressed. This is ridiculous. This is the 1960s and 70s. So this isn't new. And we need to not be so... Unbelieve, you know, like unbelieving about how stupid these people are. There's always been stupid people, and stupid people generally are, don't do anything meaningful. And since they don't do anything meaningful, they have time on their hands, and therefore they can go out and make a bunch of noise and yell and scream and cry. And if you think about these kids on these college campuses, that's what they're doing. They get they're bored. They got nothing else to do. They're they're finding offense in something. And part of it is, to be fair, young people have a rebellious spirit. And the less there is to rebel against, some of them, the harder they'll look to find something to rebel against. And what they used to rebel against was the state. But now they see the state as the source of everything, so basically they pander to the state and beg the state to give them the things that they want. They want the state to force you to call somebody a Z until they identify which gender they identify for you so that you don't offend them. Well, screw you, Z. He, she, shim, whatever you are, I don't give a damn. You know? I don't care. What do I think will bring an end to this wave of it? 
is probably going to be atrophy. As these children get jobs and go off and do things, a whole new group of children are coming up that will be entering the, the, the college system. I mean, think about it this way. In four years, 100% of these people that are in colleges, well, okay, let's try this another way. In six years, 90% of these people that are in these four-year universities will be out of that system. And they're going to have to go do something with themselves to be able to pay their student loan debt because student loan forgiveness is not coming. right? They're going to have to do something with their lives. They're going to have to. And they're going to have to get on with it. And then you'll have a whole new wave of people. Now, I think we probably got 10 years of this shit ahead of us because this is indoctrinated into kind of the kids that are like 7th and 8th grade and up right now. It's getting indoctrinated to them in the public school system, too. It'll morph into something else, and it'll be a complete new ridiculousness, all based in complete liberal nonsense yet again when it comes back around with something new. And, and don't think that, like, you guys that are Gen X are like, well, he skipped us, didn't he? This is the 60s and the 70s, and then these idiots, these millennials. We had some of our own idiocy. The Gen X are the people that went to Seattle, Washington, when the World Bank was meeting there, and smashed windows and acted just like these idiots are doing today, screaming and yelling, and they have there's news footage of guys walking up to them and going, what are you here for? We're here to protest the World Bank! Okay, what does the World Bank do? Uh, they like oppress people and, and, and stuff. Exactly how do they do that? With money, and, you know, they're the World Bank, so they have everybody's money, and, yeah. That's our generation, guys. Those of you that are about my age. Our, our generation did that shit. I'm a little bit older than the average person that was at that. I guess I was probably 26-ish, somewhere around there when that happened. Uh, most of them were college age, so they were 18 to 24, 25. So just a little bit older than those, those folks that were there. But that's my generation. We had our own nonsense. Gen X had a lot of bullshit. Uh, and a lot of this, like, I remember when I first came to Texas. Now, I had been in the Army, and I grew up playing hockey on ice in Pennsylvania. We, when a pond would freeze over good enough, and you could jump on the edge, and it wouldn't crack, and you knew it was safe, everybody got their skates, and we'd set up some you know, impromptu nets, and we'd get a puck, and we'd go out there and play hockey on ice with no real protective equipment, and we beat the shit out of each other. So I, I move into this apartment complex. I was 21 years old, just out of the Army. And there was this group of college kids. They were all actually a little bit older than me that lived like catty corner from us. And we used to hang out with them and drink beer here and there, me and my, my buddy that were roommates and some friends that would come over and all. And one day, I, I, I'm out, I'm working on my truck, and I had a couple beers, and I'm sitting there, and I see them all come out, and they, they, they're going to play street hockey. All right, so they set up their little net and all, and, and uh, they said, you want to play? And I'm like, well, let me finish what I'm doing here. And they came over. They were fascinated by the fact that I knew how a starter motor worked. I was putting a starter motor in a Mustang too, a piece of shit car. Um, and uh, But once I got done with it and got cleaned up a little bit, I went over and we, we talked to him. And, yeah, we're going to play hockey. So there was some there was some girls playing, too. So, like, I'm not going to, like, shoulder check the girl or whatever. But this dude is, like, he looked like a football player. This guy was, like, probably 250, 260 or more. And he was, like, a good four or five inches taller than me. 
And I, I get the, you know, they don't have a puck, they got a ball. So I get the ball and I'm coming toward the net with the ball to take a little, little sweet shot. I have this, instead of this big old smack, this little twitch that just like pushes the ball off the end of the thing. So he comes in to block me and I, I don't really check him hard. I just turn my left shoulder into him a little bit and I don't low hit him or anything. I hit him as high as I can, which is about right in his, his pectoral muscle on his, on his, I guess his, his right side. And he falls on his ass. And I take the shot, and it actually goes in. And I reach down and I, to pick him up. I reach down and give him my hand. He was offended. Now, you got to understand, this is 93. He was offended and upset. And everybody was like, oh, I can't believe you did that, you know. Like, we're, we're, play, we're playing hockey. Well, we got some you know, small-frame females here. I didn't check them. I didn't even think. And I was like, I didn't even think he'd go down. I didn't check him that hard. And he wasn't hurt, and he didn't say it hurt when I checked him. He was offended that I checked him, playing hockey. So if you think this softness and this overreaction and all of this bullshit is something new that's endemic of this generation only, it's, it's selective memory. Because I, I can think all the way back to being you know, a, a kid that never understood why people always had their feelings hurt about everything. And part of that is Asperger's and not having a lot of empathy for people. But but when I even when I think back now, I'm like, really, like that that you know blew out your your ball sack or whatever. I don't, I don't understand. And I eventually just told him, I said, I, I, I you know we'll hang out and drink beer. I can't play hockey with you if if shoulder check is off off the table because that's how you play hockey. And they, these people had been playing street hockey. I start talking to them. They've been playing street hockey since they were like 10 years old. And, and like, I don't know if they had moms that were like, we don't do that. That's not nice or what the hell it was. But I can't, I can't conceive of a, of a, a group of people that are that old and that physically capable that were afraid of a shoulder check. When I was in high school, We had a game called scurry hockey. I loved playing scurry hockey. We had two, we did it in the uh, basketball court, and we had a goal under you know a little hockey goal under each uh, basically rim right under the like where the basket backboard was. You'd line the front up with that line, and you break the you know break the the whole class up into two teams. So it's way more people than you have in a real hockey game. So it gets a lot more interesting if you know what I mean. And you could hit somebody as hard as you want. Now you couldn't punch them in the face. Right or you know you weren't gonna crawl, you weren't gonna hit somebody with a stick because it was a little bitty stick you had to like bend down pretty good to get it and you stuck it inside the the loop and you ran with it and you just used the loop to pass it or to take a shot or whatever. Well, we had these bleachers that just folded up flat to the wall, so that became like the boards and we would knock each. I mean, this is high school, and we would knock the shit out of people into the the, the boards uh, all the time. Or the back line or whatever. There was basically no real out of bounds unless it went down behind something or something like that. It bounced off the wall and keep going like hockey. And you get somebody in a corner, you well the shit out of them and clear the puck out to, or your ring out to your, to your buddy. And I, I mean, I grew up with that in high school. And if, if these guys had played with like the guys I used to play with in that game, I mean, they would have been on the ground crying. And these were again, six foot, three inch, You know, corn-fed North Texas. They look like farm boys, but they clearly weren't. So, again, just don't think this is new. Don't think all this sensitive shit and stuff like that, because these guys were actually a little older than me, 
So it wasn't a generation because I wasn't that way. I think a lot of it has to do with regional differences, where people grow up and under what conditions that they grow up in. Because I'll tell you what, there's some tough-ass 20-somethings out there. Really tough. And there's some wussy-ass 20-somethings out there. Really wussy. And it, this too shall pass. The, the, the most useful thing of social justice warriors today is for our amusement with ridiculous YouTube videos. And don't waste too much time watching them because you got other stuff to be doing. Those are just my thoughts on it. I don't have an Amazon item of the day for you today, but please remember, if you like the show and the work that I do, you can just go to tspaz.com the next time you want to shop on Amazon. Click the first link there. You'll go on over to Amazon, see what their deals of the day are, see if there's anything cool there. Not interested in just enter your stuff and start searching for things you were going to buy anyway. Uh, buy your stuff, and because we referred you as the affiliate, we get a, a commission on that. So it's a simple, easy, effective way to support the survivalpodcast.com by going to tspaz.com whenever you shop on Amazon. And again, I do have a link in the show notes today for that ginger paste. Uh, it's pretty cool, cool stuff. Again, Laxmi, L-A-X-M-I, ginger paste. I'll review that someday on an item of the day for you and give you a couple recipes with it. Anyway, that brings us straight into our song of the day. Our song of the day today uh, from John Adam is a song called Black Balloon by the Goo Goo Dolls. And um, I'd heard the song before. I didn't even really know it was Black Balloon was the name of it, though. I like, it was one of those songs like, I don't know if I, I like Goo Goo Dolls. I thought they had a lot of really great music. I'm like, I don't know if I ever heard that song. And I started listening, I'm like, yeah, I've heard that song. Now, John Adam has been selecting these. Here's what he says to me about it. Um, lead singer John Resnick wrote this about a friend who overdosed from heroin, according to Song Facts. Heroin was really gaining momentum, as the overdose statistics will confirm, so naturally it became a common topic in songs of this era. Since 1998, heroin, heroin and opiate fatalities have effectively quadrupled. In 2014, opiate overdoses killed 28,000, with half of those prescription opioids. Half are prescription. Let me tell you something. The other, so it's like 14,000 each. The other 14,000 had died on street heroin. Probably half or more ended up on street heroin because of pharmaceutical opioids. Because of some stupid studies in the 80s that basically said that opioids were not addictive if used for pain. <laughs> it's, it's just, it's absolutely preposterous. And they're one of the most dangerous drugs and It was coming up at this time, but I guess it's another regional thing. Like where, when I was in high school, like people smoked pot. I mean, that was a, that was a thing. Um, but if you if somebody would have said, "Hey, let's go get some heroin," the, the biggest pothead in the school would have been like, "Are you nuts?" Like there has to be like if we're going to get high, there has to be something a little better for us to use than freaking heroin. I mean, it was just considered a gutter drug. But times have changed. So much so that even though that was the case when I was in high school, it was uh, I think it was about two years after I came to Texas, maybe three. So right about this time that uh, I was talking to my father, and he was still in Pennsylvania. I'd been down here a few years, and he said, "You know that girl Carla?" I said, "Heath's girlfriend." So this was a, one of my best friends in high school. It's a guy named Heath, and uh, we had, we had kind of a group that hung out together all the time. And Carla was part of that group because she was Heath's girlfriend. I said, yeah. He goes, she died. She's very young. She's younger than me. I think she was a freshman when I was a senior, to kind of put it in perspective. Well, what the hell happened? He said, heroin. I said, really? He goes, it's all over here now. What? 
Pottsville, in Minersville, Pennsylvania. Heroin's everywhere. Oh, yeah, it's everywhere. He said there was an article in the paper about a brand of it. Like, it has a brand? He goes, yeah, they call it lethal injection. And it, it comes in a bag with a little skull and crossbones on it. And since then, as John Adams said in his notes here, it's, it's quadrupled. It's only gotten worse. It's one of the biggest scourges in our society, and it's at least partly attributable to doctors and pharmacological uh, companies, drug companies, handing out opiates like M&Ms. And it's also, because I've watched enough documentaries on this, It's very difficult for these people when they decide they want to be clean to get a seat, to get a bed at a rehab facility. We'll throw them in a jail, no problem. Uh, we'll ruin their lives, no problem. But when they voluntarily say, hey, I, I got a problem, I need somebody to help me, they might wait three or four months before they can get into a place, or longer. If you are a drug addict hooked on heroin that has reached the point low enough that you're willing to beg for help, you probably don't have three or four months. And if we just stop blocking people up for drug use, we'd have plenty of places that we could send them for rehabilitation. And that's what these people need. And they need, it's so easy. It's so easy to just see them as a throwaway part of society. You know, to just say like, eh, they're drug users or whatever. And Jack, you're supposed to be for, you know, legalization of drugs. I am. I think we'd have less people dying of drugs if drugs were legalized, especially if marijuana was legalized everywhere. And the places that have legalized recreational marijuana have seen the usage of other street drugs crumble. It's the worst news for drug dealers in the world when marijuana gets legalized. So, yeah, that doesn't mean they don't need treatment and help. It don't mean that they don't need treatment and help. And it is a pathway for many women to prostitution. It's a terrible thing. And I think most people in America today could probably tell you at least one person that they cared about that died from a heroin overdose in the wealthiest and freest nation under the sun. It's a sad thing. That's what this song's about. And I actually hate to admit how much I like this song because if you don't really pay attention deeply to the meaning of it, it sounds good. It doesn't sound sad. It sounds like he was trying to write something that did talk about the problem but also remember his friend in a good light. Remember that about people with substance abuse problems. In the end, they're people with a problem. They themselves are not a problem. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Black balloon makes a fly. Almost fell into that hole in your life. You're not thinking about tomorrow. Cause you were the same as me, but on your Never reach you 
I've been the one I saw the world spin beneath you And scattered like ice from the spoon There was your Showed you the swallow. 